But if you get a Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 4 with me. Uh, if you're a guest, we've been working through our way through the book of Jonah for the last several weeks together, and we kind of draw it to a close this morning. And we'll read together Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. And so if you want to follow along in your own text, go ahead and turn there. It'll be on the screen for us as we read as well. In Jonah chapter 4, uh, to get to Jonah chapter 4, you've got to go through Jonah 1, 2, and 3. And in Jonah 1, 2, and 3, what we saw is that God calls Jonah and sends him to Nineveh. And Jonah gets up and he flees as far as he can in the opposite direction that his mind can conceive of going in order to escape where God was sending him to. And then in Jonah chapter, uh, so God sends a storm upon the sea in Jonah chapter 1 to chase after Jonah, uh, and Jonah winds up being hurled into the to the midst of that storm and sinks below the waves and God appoints a fish to come up and swallow Jonah by his grace to save Jonah from certain and impending death. And so Jonah cries out to God from the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2 with this prayer. And God delivers him from the belly of the fish and appoints the fish to vomit him out on dry ground. And then God comes to Jonah a second time in Jonah chapter 3 and says, Get up and go to Nineveh, where I sent you originally. And so Jonah arises, goes to Nineveh, and he calls out against the city the message that God had given him to speak. And whenever he calls out to the city, the people repent, and the king even comes down off of his throne, takes off of his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, and sits in ashes in repentance, turning from their sin into throwing themselves upon the grace of God. And God is gracious to them, and he turns aside from the anger and the wrath that he had plan to do to them because of their sin. And so at the end of Jonah chapter 3, we find God turning from his wrath and anger toward the city of Nineveh. And so in Jonah chapter 4, all this has just transpired. And in Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the text reads as follows, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, not I, pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, the book of Jonah ends 
much more like real life and a lot less like movies, right? Whenever you go to a movie, right, by the end of the movie, if the movie's good and it leaves you kind of on this high note, whenever you walk out, you're feeling good because all the tensions that surface throughout that production have been resolved. They've all been tied up. And so people get married or kids, a child is born or you've got all, you know, whatever relational strife and conflict that existed gets resolved in the context of that movie. But the book of Jonah ends much more like real life than it does a movie because in real life, the tensions aren't always resolved, are they? Not everything gets tied up in a nice, neat bow, does it? And so the book of Jonah ends with this question in verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? As we look back on Jonah, what we learned in chapter one was that whenever God calls us and we run away from that call, that when we run from God's call, we're also running from the image of God in us, that he formed us, that he created us to reflect. So we look less and less human the further we run away from God. And that God is not safe, but he is good because he chases Jonah down and he hurls a sea, a storm in his life to get his attention. But he is good because he appoints the fish to swallow him and save him from impending death. In Jonah chapter 2, we learn that only the Lord God, the true God, the one God, the living God is able to save and rescue and redeem and deliver and that we cannot turn to impotent idols or worthless false gods in order to deliver or save us. And then in Jonah chapter 3, we saw how God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. And in Jonah chapter 4, what we learn as this story comes to a close, again, not all tied up in a nice little bow, what we learn is this. We learn that what we are in often exposes what is in us, right? What we are in often, in fact, almost always exposes what is in us. What you are in exposes what is in you. If you look in the text in Jonah chapter 4 that we just read together, what you're going to notice is that in verses 6 to 9, there is this dialogue between God and his prophet and God is gracious to Jonah once again, and he appoints a plant to grow over Jonah. Because Jonah, here's what Jonah has done. As he sees God being gracious to Nineveh, he goes outside the city, he sets up a little tent, and he kicks back with a Coke and some popcorn, and he's waiting for fireworks, right? He's waiting for God to rain down brimstone and fire and sulfur like he did against Sodom and Gomorrah, and just see this thing erupt in all of its glory, like the most action-packed movie scene you could possibly imagine where something explodes. That's what Jonah's waiting for. But even in that moment, God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah in the little tent that he's created. In fact, some of the King James translations actually words that he, a gourd, right? this growing plant, this growing vine that would grow up over Jonah and give him shade from the sun. And Jonah is thrilled about the plant, right? He is pumped about the plant, He's excited about the plant. In fact, the Hebrew in Jonah chapter 4, it says he's exceedingly glad. That's the strongest possible language in the Hebrew text that he could use in order to describe the joy and elation that Jonah feels for this plant that God had appointed. Then the next day, God causes a worm to come along and crawl up into the plant and to devour said plant and kill said plant that he had just caused to grow up over Jonah. And Jonah goes into a tailspin, and he's exceedingly angry once again. And then in Jonah, in verse 8, God appoints a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah with the result that he becomes faint. And in verse 9, Jonah says, listen, I'm tired of this. Just kill me. Just 
just kill me. See, what happens to Jonah is what God is doing in that moment as he grows the plant and he kills the plant and he sends the sun and he sends the wind is that what Jonah is in and the circumstances and situation that Jonah finds himself in is exposing what's in Jonah. What we are in exposes what is in us. Jonah is so wrapped up in himself that he is angry enough to die over a plant that God says, you didn't sow it, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't cultivate it, you didn't water it, you didn't fertilize it, you didn't do anything to tend to it. I, by my grace, made it grow. And Jonah is so wrapped up in himself that he's angry enough to die because something that he did nothing to contribute to has been taken away. See, what God is doing are using the plant and the worm and the wind as object lessons in Jonah's life to begin to expose and bring to the the fact that there is a callousness, an indifference, a self-absorption, a self-pity, and a self-righteousness, and a pride that is lurking beneath the surface in Jonah's heart. See, God's pardoning grace to Nineveh, when he pardons them and relents the disaster, is purging grace to Jonah. When God works to pardon Nineveh, he's working to get something out of Jonah. The callousness and indifference, the self-righteousness and self-pity and the self-absorption. John Newton, the great hymn writer in the history of the church several hundred years ago, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. We all love to sing Amazing Grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But he also wrote several other hundred hymns uh, that don't get as much playtime in churches, particularly this one called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And he wrote it on the basis of reading a reading of Jonah, particularly Jonah chapter 4. And listen to what he says. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his hand, his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, my plants, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? In this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. What God is doing in Jonah at this moment is seeking to purge him of the callousness and the indifference, of the self-righteousness and self-absorption, of the pride and the arrogance that is lingering beneath the surface. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon he preached on Jonah chapter 4, about, a, about 150 years ago, uh, he said that God is in all our comforts, all our afflictions, and all our heaviest trials to prepare us, to purge us. And in one section of that sermon, this is what he says. He says, it seems that at the time, the trial only revealed Jonah's folly. 
for it appeared to make him pray very foolishly and talk very foolishly. His trials were like the tossing of the troubled sea, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. This vehement east wind threw up great masses of black seaweed upon the shore of Jonah's character and made the great sea of his heart roll up the foul mass of corruption that else might have been hidden and still. <laughs> Listen, Spurgeon very vividly, very vividly reminds us that oftentimes what is in us is worse than what we are in. He says, if you look at a calm and placid pond or a calm and placid lake, if you drive over Lake Ray Hubbard on a very calm day with a bluebird sky, what you're going to see is this glass-like reflection upon the water, and that water is going to look clear. You think, man, that's a clean body of water. Oh, little do you know. But when the wind begins to blow and the, and the wind begins to howl and those white caps begin to rage upon that lake, that glass, placid, calm, serene water turns into these engulfing waves that begin to cast up all kinds of dirt from the bottom and it begins to draw up sediment and circulate it so that it becomes a very stained-looking lake. And Spurgeon says, whenever God uses these object lessons in Jonah's life, like a wind that would cast up the sediment from the bottoms of our soul to show us what's there. And we would not see that sediment apart from the wind. We wouldn't see it. Some of us in here know that experience of having what we are in expose what is in us. Since several years ago, many of you know our story when my daughter, our daughter was born, and she was born with a birth defect that required uh, six surgeries over the course of about a, a two-year span in order to correct some malformities in her skull and some malformities in her eyes. And so as we went through surgery, to, from surgery to surgery to surgery to surgery to surgery, I can remember coming to a point in the midst of that ordeal and what we were in. And I can remember very honestly, and I'll be very transparent with you this morning, looking up to the heavens and saying, God, all the sacrifice that I made going through seminary, paying a mortgage note to my bank to, for the home that I live in, and another one to the seminary for the classes that I was taking every month for eight years, all the sacrifice financially, all the sacrifice of time, all the energy, all the study, all the effort, and everything that I've laid down to serve Jesus' church, God, I deserve a healthy little girl. And in the midst of that very turbulent time, as the winds howled in my life, there was a sense of entitlement that came up that was very ugly that I didn't know was there. What we are in exposes what is in us. And oftentimes, most times, you and I think, if I can just get out of what I am in, then everything will get better. But what God is doing is he's not necessarily promising to get you out of what you are in, but he is working to get out of you what is in you. As he works in Jonah to get out of him what is in him. 
See, some of us in the midst of a very turbulent time, perhaps in our marriage, we might think, if I could just, all this relational strain, if I could just get a divorce and I could move on and I could put this chapter of my life behind me because that person has ruined my life and all they've ever done is cause me harm and inflict pain and cause me to, uh, to, to, to doubt myself and question myself. And, uh, and so we think, if I could just move forward, if I could just get past that, But oftentimes, in my experience, the people that I'm talking to are in those kinds of situations. They have blinders on where all they see is the problem in the other person, and they never see what's in them. But perhaps what's in you, God is trying to get out by what you are in. I've met so many single people over the course of my ministry experience who think, if I could just find that right person, everything would be good. And what they often don't realize is that one of, perhaps some of the times the relationships that they're in keep coming to an end, not because of what's in the other person, but because of what's in them. Not always, but sometimes that is the case. Or people falsely assume that if I'm going to step forward, I'm going to engage in ministry. I'm going to serve Jesus. Everything's going to go well. But what they don't often realize is that before, oftentimes before God uses us, works through us, he's got to work in us. We so badly want God to get us out of what we are in, but what if God is more concerned about getting out of us what is in here? So in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in these object lessons that perhaps God is employing in your life, what is it that he's trying to get out of you? So oftentimes we extend an invitation to follow Jesus and say everything around you is going to get so much better. Right? When you wake up in the morning, the birds are going to be clear singing in your window. When you wake up in the morning, right, the grass is going to smell fresher whenever it's cut. And we make promises that everything around you is going to get better. But what happens when it doesn't? What happens whenever you come to Jesus and you place your faith in Jesus and God saves you and you begin to follow after him and as opposed to your marriage getting better, it gets worse. Because you are persuaded of who Jesus is, but your, your spouse isn't. So there's got to be room in our theology for that kind of reality. Because oftentimes, what we are in is God's method to get out of us what's in us. But what was in Jonah? What was in Jonah? Listen to what was in Jonah. What was in Jonah was a heart that was against rather than for his enemies. What was in Jonah was a heart that was against rather than for his enemies. See, Jonah's operating out of a default mode of the human heart, and when it functions that way, self-righteously against those who believe and live differently than we do, and that's kind of how Jonah's operating. So you look in verse 1, and you see when God spares the city of Nineveh, Jonah comes, he he gets enraged, as as angry as he can possibly be. If you look in verse verse, verse 6, where God appoints the plant, and he's exceedingly glad, back up in the earlier portion of Jonah chapter 4, he's exceedingly angry, and again, the Hebrew is as strong as possible possible terms that Jonah, of Jonah's anger and displeasure. He is enraged by the fact that God was gracious to his enemies. He's enraged by it. And make no mistake, Assyria was indeed the sworn enemy of Israel. Right? In Jonah's day, in Jonah's time, what made Jonah so angry was the fact that Assyria was the strongest political power in the ancient Near East at this time. 
And as they were the strongest political power, their territory was advancing rapidly, and they overpowered smaller nations, occupied and oppressed their citizens, and they kept moving, and they kept rolling forward. In fact, there's archaeological reliefs that have been discovered that depict uh, the Syrian kings taking the kings of conquered nations and running hooks through their bottom lips and holding them down to take spears and poke out their eyes. Right? You put a hook in their lip because they, they don't want to move after that. Right? You're not going to jerk away from the spear. You rip your lip off. And they would put out their eyes. These were no just run-of-the-mill type bad folks. These were the people who, who defaced the image of God. And Jonah, Jonah is struggling. Assyria, in fact, Assyria was Israel's enemy. Israel was in a four-nation coalition to fight off her advances. So she had partnered with people around her and said, we've we got to stop Assyria. We've got to stop her. Whatever we do, lay down our lives. We've got to stop her. So Jonah sees Assyria not only as a collection of very bad people, but as a threat to his nation's national security. They're his enemy. How could God be gracious to them? How could God pardon them? How could God spare them? It enraged him because keeping Nineveh around, keeping Assyria around and not wiping out that whole generation of Ninevites was of no personal benefit to Jonah and was of no national benefit to Israel. See, Jonah's exceedingly glad when God's grace benefits him, but he is enraged whenever God's grace benefits his enemies. In fact, Hosea had already prophesied in Hosea 11.5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, speaking of his people, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Hosea says, because of all of Israel's idolatry, God's going to raise up Assyria and use them to judge Israel. And now God could have wiped out Nineveh and wiped out the Assyrians, but he chose to keep them around, to use them as his instrument in his hand of judgment against his own people. Jonah had a heart in him that was against his enemies, not for them. And we might think of political enemies today and national enemies that we might have, but every single one of us also have personal enemies, people who would stand in opposition to us and against us. And oftentimes, in our particular cultural context, the way that we go about making enemies is one of two ways. We either make enemies because we embrace truth or we make enemies because we extend grace. Right? Either we're embracing truth or we're extending grace and people on one side of the fence or the other don't like that very much. And so you see it play out all over Facebook, right? Those of you who are on Facebook and you see people who embrace a biblical worldview, either in conversations, in personal relationships, or on social media, and they embrace a biblical worldview and people just begin, as opposed to interacting with their arguments, they just begin to lob names. They're like, you're just intolerant, you're bigoted, you're unrefined, you're prehistoric, right? They begin to call names like we're archaic and narrow-minded and hypocritical. So you make enemies if you embrace a biblical worldview and you embrace truth. But you can also make enemies. And those typically tend to be enemies on the far left. Right? You want to say anything goes. But you can also make enemies on the far right as well. And those typically tend to be not enemies in the culture, but in the church. Because those of us who extend grace, oftentimes people will begin to levy accusations against us. And they will say that you are soft, or you're tolerant, or you're liberal and too open-minded, or you're unwilling to hold the truth if you extend grace to others. 
So we can often make enemies by either embracing truth and having those on the far left begin to lob grenades at us, or we can make enemies by extending grace and have those on the far right begin to lob grenades at us. And here's, here's the reality. If you, if you do both, right, if you embrace truth and you extend grace, what's going to happen is you're going to have people on both sides of the road now shooting at you. <laughs> you're going to have people who are on the far left shooting at you because you embrace a biblical worldview and truth. And you're going to have people on the right who are very self-righteous and legalistic shooting at you because you're extending grace. But what happens is whenever a lost and dying world begins to look at that and they begin to see that in a church and in a people who are going to embrace truth and wrap their lives around it and live in accordance with it, but they're also at the same time going to, going to love and serve and extend grace to those who would be their enemies. I don't know quite how to classify that because I can't say, well, you're just a conservative over here or you're just a liberal over here, right? Because you're loving and serving people who disagree with you and want your demise, but at the same time, you're calling them to repentance and you're embracing truth. But you're laying your life down for them in the process. You can't classify that as conservative or liberal. What that is is Christian. It looks like Jesus. See, what was in Jonah was a heart that was against rather than for his enemies. And what you and I need, what we need if we're going to be for our enemies, is a heart that cares for those that God has created. I want you to look in verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4. In verse 11, God asks a question to Jonah that just kind of rings in the hearts and minds of his hearers and readers throughout every generation. And the question is, should I not pity the city of Nineveh? Should I not pity them? Now, that word pity literally means this. It literally means the eye, having the eyes flow on account of. Literally in the Hebrew, that's what it means. Having your eyes flow, tears stream down your cheeks on account of the city of Nineveh. God says, should my eyes not be filled with tears of compassion whenever I look out upon the city of Nineveh and I see 120,000 persons who have no moral compass insofar as I can't even determine what hand is left and right. Should I not have compassion on them and pity on them? Should my eyes not be filled with tears on account of their resistance and their running and their rebellion? And the answer to that rhetorical question, because it is a rhetorical question that's supposed to leave ringing in your hearts and minds as well, is yes. God says to Jonah, listen, you didn't do anything for that plant. It grew in a night and it died in a day. It was so temporal. And yet for hundreds of years, the Ninevites have been there. For hundreds of years. And I created them. They're men and women and children who are formed in my image and my likeness. Should my heart not be extended to them? Should I not be gracious towards them? Should my eyes not be flowing with tears of compassion because of them? And the answer that the author of Jonah intends us to walk away with is yes. And so should we. And so should we. That our hearts should be filled with compassion, even for those who would stand in opposition to us and who would lob grenades at us. See, what our oftentimes, what our natural default response is, is this. Right? Is that people stand against us and so we arch our back and we stand against them. 
Are they violating biblical, a biblical worldview and biblical norms? And so we arch our back and we want to levy revenge and lob grenades and start boycotts as opposed to loving and serving people. Because our eyes are filled with compassion when we look at them. And our hearts are broken because they have no moral compass. God says, you need a heart that cares for those he has created. And listen, every other, every other worldview and every, the average person in our particular community, in our culture, would say the world would be a better place if, if people loved and served even those who disagreed with them. Every, every average person in our culture would say that. Right? That our society would be better, that there would be less war across the globe. So at a very global level, at a very national level, at a very personal level, this world would be a better place if, if we loved and served and had compassion for even those that disagreed with us. But listen, there is no other worldview, there is no other religious perspective, there is no other mode of operation that provides a basis for and the power to have compassionate love for people who criticize and want to crucify us outside of Christianity. And here's why. And here's what will move your heart away from a heart that is against your enemies and toward a heart that is for them. The only thing that will be powerful enough to do that is that if you see that where Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds. See, in Jonah, God declares that he has compassion for those who are far from him, for those whose lives who are all twisted up and bent by sin, that he has compassion for them, those who stand opposed to him. But in Jesus, he not only says it, but he shows it. He not only declares it, but he demonstrates it. Because you see, what you have in Jesus and what you see in Jesus is that God not only teaches us through him to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that. You should love your enemies. You've heard that it was said, right? But I tell you, love them. Pray for them when they persecute you. Or you read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, Right? And you see where the Apostle Paul says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 10, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he takes up the towel and he serves his disciples and he takes up the cross and he walks up a hill and he dies he dies for those on the right and those on the left who are hurling grenades at him. Where Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds and triumphs because he not only talks to us about loving our enemies, but he loves you and I who were his enemies. See, Jesus didn't all talk. He lays down his life. In fact, in Luke chapter 23, 
as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does he say in Matthew 5? Pray for those who persecute you. What does he do in Luke 23? He prays for those who are taking his very life. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know their right hand from their left. Now listen, laying your life down for even those who disagree with you and lob grenades at you does not mean that you always agree with them and you affirm them in every particular stance that they take. You gotta love them through word. So that means sometimes that what you say to them is gonna run counter to what they believe and how they're functioning. So you love them through word, right? Because if you really love them and you believe, right? For instance, if I'm driving down a road and I come to an impasse in the road and I realize that the bridge is out, right? And that if anybody else drives down that road, they're gonna be headed for certain destruction and death. Then what do I do? I turn around and I see all these cars passing by me and I'm heading the other direction and I just let them head on down over the cliff. See you guys later. No, what do I do? Right? I pull a hard to the left, right, and slide like Dukes of Hazard into the middle of the road and stop him and say, listen, stop going that direction. It's only going to lead to death and destruction and all kinds of despair in your life. So sometimes we love people through word, as Jesus does, but we also got to love them through deed. We embrace the biblical worldview. We embrace truth, but we extend grace, and we love and serve even those who disagree with us. by laying our lives down. See, if you're gonna do that, what you have to see, and what I have to see in the mirror every day, is that you gotta see that Jesus was for you even when you were against him. Even when you were against him. And if you're not yet a Christian in here this morning, this is what you gotta see. You gotta see that right now, even though you are against him, he is for you. I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon, in that same sermon on Jonah chapter four that I referenced earlier, said this. He said, I'm probably speaking to some of you who are not yet converted to God. You have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a world of troubles. You think that God is so angry with you that he means to destroy you. For ever since you've begun to think of divine things, you've had nothing but trouble. You've, had one, you've lost one dear friend after another. You have yourself been very ill, and you have often very low-spirited and sad. And you say to yourself, ah, I am doomed to perish. This Spurgeon says, now I do not come to that conclusion at all. On the contrary, I thank God for your trouble, for I think that as God dealt with Jonah to teach him a lesson, he is dealing with you to bring you to himself. Listen, if you're not a Christian in here this morning and there's all kinds of chaos in your life, and you think, if I could just get out of what I am in, I'd be in such a better place. Perhaps what you are in is the means by which God is seeking to, to get out of you what is in you. My hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we would see that Jesus was for us even when we were against him and that we would begin to move out toward others and care for those that he's created in real, practical, and tangible ways. That we would embrace truth and so people on the left are gonna lob grenades but we'd also extend grace, and so people on the right are going to lob grenades. So we're going to take fire from both sides of the street. 
as we say, this is what God has said, but here I am to love and serve you. Let's pray together. Father, we come today with thanks for your grace and mercy and kindness. You did not leave us in our sin. You provided a hope for us that extends beyond the changing of circumstances in our lives today to an eternal and glorious future with you. Father, I pray for myself and for those in the room this morning who are perhaps in very difficult times right now. Their plants are dying. The sun is scorching and the wind is howling. Father, I pray that in the midst of those trials, that they would see that what you are doing is working to get something out of them as opposed to just getting them out of something. And Father, for those of us who perhaps our hearts, what's in our hearts is the same thing that was in Jonah's heart, that we are against those who stand against us. Father, I pray that you would create a heart within us by your grace as we see Jesus laying his life down for those of us who are against him and were against him. When we see that, our hearts would be changed from being against our enemies to for our enemies as we care for those that you have created. So that even those, as we embrace truth and those on the left want to criticize and as we extend grace and those on the right want to criticize, that ultimately our lives will be conformed to the image of your son who called people to repentance and gave his life to them. Help us to see that where Jonah failed, that your son succeeded. And as we meditate on that, may we move out extending grace and embracing truth to care for those that you have created. We pray this in Jesus' name.